2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this one fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Over the last few weeks, as a Bible teacher, I've been finding this second letter of Peter really tough going. Uh, Not because it's particularly hard to understand, but because it's been a really tough topic. Uh, For a fair lump of this letter, Peter's been warning us about false teachers, and he has been so scathing. Uh, But now he switches from attacking the false teachers to encourage the faithful. And when we're doing this sort of stuff, this is the sort of thing we preachers love to talk about. When it comes to the return of Jesus, it's critical for us to be reminded of this over and over and over again. And that's what Peter's doing today. He's reminding us of the return of Jesus. And he's reminding us also of the coming day of judgment because we can't have one without the other. They both happen at the same time. Um, So some people will be longing for the day of judgment and not realise it um, because they're actually seeing all the evil that's happening in the world and that's going through their mind. Why do the wicked people seem to get away with what they're doing? Some people just keep on doing stuff and it doesn't seem like they ever pay for it. Well, what they're actually crying out for is for the day of judgment to come. And the day of judgment will come. Uh, And Jesus will deal with everything that's evil 
and so beware, all evil will be dealt with, not just the stuff that offends us. And some long for the return of Jesus. Lord, I'm longing for your holy presence to come. Lord, bring that day of glory. The, the old body, the bones are getting a bit achy and I'm looking forward to the glorious new body. Come, Jesus, come. But we have to realise also that when Jesus does come, with it will come the day of judgment. We can't have one without the other. So let's get into it. Before we get to the end of this final chapter of 2 Peter, three times Peter refers to the faithful as his beloved. Uh, he reminds the beloved of the impending return of Jesus, and that's what he's talking about today. And then next week we'll hear him command the beloved uh, to make every effort to be holy and to be at peace, which is how we need to be when Jesus returns. And he warns the beloved to be on guard and to be firm in our faith while we wait for Jesus. But isn't it a wonderful thing to know that we are the beloved? That, that's a pretty, pretty great thing, uh, to be the beloved of Jesus, to be the beloved of our Heavenly Father, to be the beloved of the Apostle Peter, and to be the beloved of each other. Uh, to me, you are my beloved. And hopefully I might be your beloved. Or was that pushing it a bit too far? Righto. The purpose of Peter's letter, actually it's the purpose of two letters that he's written to this church, and I'm not sure if the other letter is First Peter or whether there's another letter that he wrote that we don't have anymore. But this is the second time that he's written to this church. And in these letters, he says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The NIV puts it like this. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. You see... If false teachers are like weeds that invade and choke out the fruitful crop, wholesome thinking is like a selective herbicide that protects the crop from the weeds. Now, I'm reluctant to say this, uh, but for the home gardeners out there, wholesome thinking in your faith and, and in the church as a whole uh, is like what weed and feed is for your lawn. Okay, and, and I'm, I cringe when I say that because um, if you don't know why I cringe, it's because you're probably not an agronomist. Uh, weed and feed is a mixture of MCPA and dicamba. They're broadleaf herbicides. Um, and it comes packaged in a little plastic bottle that you plug on your garden hose and you squirt it out over your lawn and it kills the broadleaf weeds. But it's also got a tiny little bit of urea and a little bit of iron in it which spruces up your lawn and makes it look green, but only for a very short while. Now, a very quick agronomy lesson, your weed control would be far better if you went and bought some Camberam and you prayed it, sprayed it through a proper sprayer uh, because as the farmers know, it's not best practice to spray herbicides through a garden hose with, um, with enough water to, to wash fertiliser into the ground. But even so, for many, weed and feed remains a convenient option. Now, that's a bit of a digression, but the thing is, false teachers 
won't get a foothold in a church if wholesome thinking is what we do. Last week, we learned that false teachers entice unsteady souls and that to become a strong Christian, to become a stable Christian, is to build our lives on the solid rock word of God. And then to do that, right? It's not just about knowing the word of God, it's about doing it also. And so if wholesome thinking is what we do, false teaching will immediately be recognised for what it is and it'll get rejected outright. To stir up a sincere mind, to stimulate wholesome thinking, um, it, it's to encourage logic and reason to be thinking on the things of God without our thoughts being influenced and corrupted and misguided by things of the flesh. But how do we achieve that? How do we have this pure thinking, this sincere mind, wholesome thinking? Well, it's all to do with how we feed our minds. Wholesome thinking is to study the Word of God and dwell on the Word of God. It's not to then study the, a word that's been contaminated by other stuff. It's not to treat the Word of God like plasticine where we shape it and mould it into something that sounds appealing to the flesh. And it's not the Word that's had stuff added to it to try and improve upon it. Peter says it's the predictions of the holy prophets. That means the Old Testament. He talks about the commandment of our Lord and Saviour. He's talking about the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament as passed down to us by the apostles. And actually, he doesn't say the apostles. He refers to them as your apostles. Did you know you have apostles? See, we need to take ownership of the apostles. They are our apostles God provided the apostles for you and for me. They are for our benefit and we must listen to them. You see, the, author the apostles have the authority to pass the word of Jesus on and to nail it down. They are the ones who heard the teachings of Jesus firsthand. They knew what it was about. And so it was to nail down what the gospel actually is. And even now, you'll, you'll know that there's all sorts of people have all sorts of different ideas and different ideas of what the gospel actually is. Well, it was the same back then. So how could they be sure that they had the true, pure gospel? They turned to the apostles, the ones who had actually heard Jesus firsthand. And that's what we now have recorded in the scriptures. And if we hold fast to the teachings of the scriptures, and if we don't treat them like plasticine, and if we don't bend them and mould them into something that they are not, and if we do allow the word of God to do what the spirit can do with it, to, to, to cut deep, if we do allow the word of God to challenge us and to renew us and to equip us and to train us in righteousness, then our faith can spring into life and it'll be uncontaminated with the lies that the devil would endeavour to sow into the church. The pure, solid rock word of God. It's like a herbicide that knocks out false teachers and it's like a fertiliser that invigorates our faith. 
And I want you to understand that this isn't just empty platitudes, right? This isn't just nice religious sounding cliches. This is true. Um, I reckon I can guarantee you that if you make studying the word of God, not turning to all other stuff all of the time, a, a way of life for you, and if you allow the Holy Spirit to change you through the word of God, your faith will become invigorated. Verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. You and I, we're living in the last days, as was Peter. And Peter is telling us this is of first importance. Above all, we need to know this, that in these last days in which we live, there will be scoffers and they'll be doing their scoffing. They'll be following their own sinful desires. They'll be living as if the return of Jesus isn't going to happen or if it does, it'll be a long way off. Do not listen to them because we know that Jesus is coming. And we have to remember that these scoffers that he's talking about here, they were most likely within that Christian group. Jesus told several parables about his return, um, and there's a common thread that runs through them. Uh, he was a long time coming, um, and then he returns unexpectedly, which meant that by then uh, some of them weren't ready. So we hear the story of the wicked servant um, who was put in charge of his household, um, but was found beating the other servants when, he, when Jesus arrived. We heard about the bridesmaids, who ran out of oil in their lamps, and so their lamps weren't burning when he arrived. We hear about a night watchman that he puts, puts on watch, but he falls asleep and he's not ready when he arrives. And the whole message is, Jesus is coming. He will be a long time, but be ready, because we don't know when it will be. And scoffers take advantage of the long time. Eh, he ain't coming. It's been strange to me uh, that in recent times, atheists seem to have become evangelists, right? There once was a time when an atheist would be quite content just not to believe in God themselves and, yep, just ignore Christians and I'm happy. Whereas now it seems that many atheists take it upon themselves that they have, con have to convince everybody else that there is no God. Uh, during this week, uh, we had our census. Now, were you all good little boys and girls and filled out your census? Yes, righto. So we had to fill out our census. And in the lead up to the census, atheists were running an advertising campaign to try and get people to tick the box to say that I don't have a religion. Did anyone hear any of those ads? I, I came across a couple of them. And... Um, it, it, to me, that just seemed really bizarre. Uh, why would they do such a thing? And, and, and the message that they're giving was, well, you know what, you might call yourself a Christian, 
but you're not godly enough to be a Christian. You don't go to church enough. It's obviously not part of your life. So be honest and don't tick the box to say you're a Christian. Tick the box to say that you have no religion. And of course, the reason that they're doing that is they want the government statistics to show, oh, there's nowhere near as many people of faith. We don't have to try and follow godly rules, et cetera, et cetera. Now, where am I going with this? A few years ago in England, some very prominent atheists paid to put advertising on the side of a, of a big London bus that said, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now, what a strange turn of phrase. There's probably no God. That's all they could come up with because they can't prove that there isn't a God. And so they couldn't say that. If they said that, then, then we could have said, well, you're a person of faith yourself. You have faith that there is no God. And so the best they could come up with, there's probably no God. But basically the, their message is, live your life as you please. There isn't no God that's going to come in the day of judgment or whatever. Just live your life as you please. Do whatever you like because there's probably no God. It's all about you. But as disciples of Jesus, we know there definitely is a God. I was talking to him this morning. There's a God who loves us. There's a God who saves us. There's a God who restores us. And there is a God who through his Holy Spirit is with us. And there's a God who is returning again to judge the living and the dead. But the, the scoffers continue. Their whole premise is, this is the way it's always been. That their attitude is, we're living in a stable, unchanging universe, and it'll be eons before the universe changes. Um, and the laws of nature, they say, is what makes the world go round. But of course, what they're forgetting is the laws of nature are written by God. They are God's laws. And our Lord is Lord of all creation. There seems, seems to be a lot of really expensive space research happening at the moment. Uh, some of it's the billionaires trying to escape the Earth's gravity. Woohoo! We can spend our money on, on weightlessness. That, that'd be the ultimate diet, wouldn't it? Um, but there's been several unmanned space vehicles that have been dispatched to Mars and other planets, but they're concentrating on Mars. And what they seem to be making a real big, big deal of is we're looking for water. We want to find water. And so they used to take samples from, from the top of it, and now they're actually boring down into the crust of Mars, hoping to find evidence that there is water or once was water on Mars. Why? Because if we can find water, then that could prove that there could be life on Mars or was life on Mars. Imagine if anybody ever finds a fossilised amoeba or something. Oh, we found the first alien. Big news, big news. Um, but they act as if water is the source of life, the source of things that, that can be made. But what they overlook is the key ingredient of life is not water. It's the Word of God. And to explain this, Peter takes us right back to the beginning. And in the beginning at creation, water plays a prominent role. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. What's the deep? The oceans. And the Spirit of God was hovering, or a better word might be fluttering, over the face of the waters. And in the whole of the account of creation, water is a prominent feature, which causes Peter to say that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. You see, it wasn't water on its own. It was water, but by the word of God. The word of God was the critical factor. Water and the word of God together was creative. Now, still in Genesis, we then get to the flood of Noah. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? Hardly any time passes and, and there's the time where we need the flood to try and sort things out a bit. And the water wasn't creative at this time. The water was destruction. By means of both water and the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So what's the critical deciding factor here? Water? Is it water that caused the flood? No, it was the word of God. Creation was by the word of God. The flood was the, at the, by the word of God. And the whole of the cosmos is now subject to the word of God. And Peter reminds us in verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Of course, scientists also believe that planet Earth is eventually going to burn up. Their timeline is just a bit different. Um, they, they believe there's going to be some minor burnings, and when we use the word minor, they, that can still be extinction-level events. Now, when I was a kid going to school, um, the big fear in the world at about that time was nuclear holocaust. It wasn't that long since Hiroshima, and of course, the, the uh, Cold War was on in abundance and, and the superpowers were stocking up on their nuclear weapons. Now, of course, that, that's still happening in the world today. More and more nations are, are acquiring access to, to um, nuclear weapons. Uh, some of them are rather concerning rogue states. But the strange thing to me is we don't seem to be as concerned about that now um, as what we are about a potential one and a half degree increase in the, in the temperature of our climate, of the atmosphere. Who'd have thought? But scientists tell us that there's still the possibility of a collision with an asteroid, right? We could run into a really big asteroid and that could really scorch the Earth and then it could get really cold. And then they tell us that there's also the chance of, of changes in the activity of the sun, some solar flares or a coronal mass ejection where a great big liquor flame comes out of the sun and scorches us. But of course, what they really talk about is the inevitable major burning up of the earth as the sun nears the end of its life. So 
The sun has a hydrogen core um, and it's actually the fuel of the sun which keeps it burning. And it's gradually being turned into helium. And so the core is getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And so therefore it's getting less and less gravity. And eventually as the sun expends itself, there'll be less gravity, which means there'll be less gravity holding it in to contain itself. And so it'll then expand and actually consume the earth. But they tell us we can breathe easy because that's not going to happen for billions of years. But even so, all of this is overlooking the one fact. It's not elements. It's not chemistry. It's not physics that maintain the order of this universe. Well, it is in a way, but all of those things are subject to the word of God. It is by the word of God that the earth was created. It is by the word of God that the wicked perished in the flood. And it will be by the word of God that the earth is judged and destroyed and renewed. And so the astrophysicists are in some ways correct. The earth will be destroyed by fire. Um, and some people might think that all oh, the world's going to be a disaster with climate change. But the thing is, it's not going to be on their timeline. God is the, the one who is in control of the scheduling. Now, it might seem that his schedule's all out of whack. We've been waiting a long time now and Jesus hasn't come back. But the thing is, it might seem like a long time but it's not. And that leads some to have the attitude, well, he ain't coming. But Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact. Now, that word overlook, it means to forget about it and it's to miss the significance of it. And there's two ways to overlook something. In verse five, he refers to they, and he's talking about the scoffers. They deliberately overlook this fact. Excuse me. But now in verse 8, he's talking to the beloved. He's not talking to the, about the scoffers now anymore. He's now talking to the beloved. And the beloved don't deliberately overlook the facts, but we do sometimes forget the significance of the facts. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. I do, I do a bit of photography and um, to take good photos, you sort of need a few different lenses, right? So to, you might need a telephoto lens to be able to photograph something that's a long way away and you want to bring it close enough to fill up your frame. So you might be trying to take a photo of a, of a bird in a tree just over there. And so you need the telephoto lens to bring it closer to you. But then to get a photo of a landscape vista, you, you need to have a wide angle lens that's going to take, in, take it all in to capture the expanse of the view. But then to get a photo a close-up photo of, of a little flower with perhaps a bead of water sitting on it. You need a macro lens, almost like a microscope on your, or a magnifying glass on the front of your camera. They'll get in close and just bring out all of that fine detail. Now, our God 
is not restrained by the limits of man. He sees the big picture stuff. And to him, a thousand years, it's just like a day. He's the God of eternity. So a thousand years, just like that, just like that. And so when you think about that, it's like only two days have gone by since Jesus ascended into heaven. But he's also the God of detail. And he can focus in on things that are really close. And one day is like a thousand years. He doesn't miss anything. Every little detail he is intimate with, every little concern in every single person's life, he's, he's familiar with each of these. He knows every heartbeat. He knows every breath. He knows every cry of the heart. And even though it's only been like two days since Jesus was crucified, the day of his crucifixion was like a thousand years to God. Can you imagine how much God took in, how much pain he bore on that day? It was like a thousand years as his son bore the scourge and was nailed to the cross. Every hammer blow was probably like a month. The Lord isn't slow. He's patient. And his patience will come to an end. In Psalm 85, we get an image of the justice of God and the mercy of God. It says, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now, this is something that was perfectly demonstrated on the cross. The righteousness of God demands justice, but the love and the mercy of God made peace possible. And that's what happened at the cross. The steadfast love and the faithfulness met. And the righteousness of God and the peace kissed. And if we understand this, then we will understand why God is so patient. Yes, he is a God of justice and so the day of judgment must come. But the love of God is such that, and the faithfulness of God is such that he doesn't want any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Uh, those who repent of their sin and surrender to Jesus as their Lord are saved. And so... God has been patiently waiting and waiting and waiting. But there will come a moment when the waiting's finished and the Lord returns. It'll be unexpected. Pretty much the whole world will be caught unawares. Peter repeats what Jesus said, that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. In their retirement, my mum and dad um, were living in Highfields and they used to have a Bible study group meeting in their home. And one night after Bible study, the first person who, who left uh, came nearly straight back inside again, nearly straight, back, straight away, and said, oh, somebody's broken a window in my car and they've taken stuff. So they all went out and checked their cars and there was a second car that had been broken into. But in addition to that, 
somebody had, that these people had walked in the laundry door while the Bible study group with about a dozen people in the house, they'd walked in the laundry door, walked down the hallway to the bedrooms and gone through the bedrooms and, and taken any valuables that they could find. Completely unexpected. You sort of wouldn't expect to have a dozen people in your house and somebody to be brazen enough to think they're not going to get caught and just do that. And that's what thieves do. They prey on our apparent trust. You know, nobody's, nobody's going to do that. But, but they prey more so on our unawareness and our lack of vigilance. And the point isn't that Jesus is evil like a thief, but that he is going to suddenly appear completely unexpected. And those who are not vigilant will not be ready. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in them will be exposed. It'll be a time of cosmic destruction and renewal, by the way. This is the good news. There's, there's going to be renewal and a recreation of the heavens and the earth. But, but this destruction, it's not just going to be a, merely a physical thing. This is all tied up in the time of judgment. The earth and the works that are done on it will all be exposed. Every lie will be exposed for what it is. Every con man will have his deception revealed. Every liar will be seen for what they are. Every person who's spoken a slanderous word or a liable word will be held accountable. And those who nobody would believe when they're telling the truth, everyone will know. Every hidden abuse that's been done to a child or to anyone for that matter that nobody knows about. And at the moment, it's only God's heart that grieves. Every hidden abuse is going to be revealed. Every prideful act, it'll all be exposed. Right Now, we know all these things, but do we overlook them? Do we miss the significance that Jesus is coming and he's going to come unexpectedly and the world and everything that's in this world that I've managed to accumulate for myself or for my ambitions, all of it is going to be burned up, destroyed, vaporised, turned to ash. It'll be finished with. Everything is temporary. Um, I personally have trouble with this. Like, I, I like making stuff. Um, I'm slow, but I like making stuff. So at the moment, I'm, I'm making a tray for my ute, and I'm putting a lot of care and stuff into it to make it just so. But I read this and go, everything's just going to be vaporised. It's like, it won't exist anymore. And it's like, you know what? If the day after I get it back and powder-coated and get it installed on the ute, if Jesus comes back that day, am I going to be cranky? Uh-uh, not at all. Not at all. Come, Lord Jesus, vaporise that tray. But every hidden detail of my life will be exposed. And every hidden detail of your life will be exposed. Do we truly grasp the significance of these things? Or do we choose to overlook the significance? 
Surely if we did grasp the significance, we wouldn't, our lives would probably be a whole lot more focused on things of eternal value. What sort of people ought we to be? Well, Paul, sorry, Peter gives us four, four answers. One, lives of holiness. We are made holy by the grace of God and through the blood of Jesus. That's when we repent of our sin and we submit to Jesus as Lord. By the grace of God, he makes us holy. That's where the holiness begins. But to have a life of holiness is a life of obedience. It's a life of righteousness. It's a life of walking in the ways of the Lord and keeping in step with the Spirit as the character of Christ becomes our character. Two, lives of godliness. Now, did you know that one of the, one of the ways of translating the Greek word that comes to godliness is um, religiousness? And people today have a bad rap, oh, religion, well, we hate religion. No, true, pure religion we should love. True, pure religion is to have a holy reverence of God. It's to have a fear of God. It's to have a healthy, awestruck fear of God that God is so much higher than me. I could never consider myself to be on equal footing with God. I am not. God is so much greater. He is so much more powerful. It is by the word of God that this earth is going to be vaporised. And not just the earth, the universe. And to realise this, this is godliness. Three, awaiting the coming of the day of God. Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And this is the day that we're looking forward to. It's the wedding day. Just as a bride prepares for a wedding and that just, it consumes the bride, doesn't it? Preparing for the wedding. But then all of a sudden the day is there and the bridegroom comes. Our master has been a long time coming, but let's be ready for him. If you knew that Jesus was going to appear at 3.37 tomorrow afternoon, what would you be doing differently today? We are to be living today as if Jesus could very well make his appearance this very hour. Uh, by the way, after last week's message, which was my longest ever, everyone, I broke the record last, last week, uh, Jake said to me, Dad, I was very surprised that Jesus didn't return during that sermon. <laughs> so thank you very much. And four, hastening the day of God. Hastening the day of God. You know, sometimes Christians can, we, we can observe something that's happening in the world and, and, and it's, it appears that, oh, that could have the fingerprints of Antichrist on it. And, and so some Christians get all up in arms. We've got to stop this. We can't let this happen because this is Antichrist. But you know what? Jesus said, these things must happen. Antichrist will come. The beast will come. Persecutions will come. The great tribulation will come. This is all the will of God. And it is not our role to shut these things down. If it were at all possible to stop these things from happening, what would we be doing? 
we would be slowing down the coming of Jesus because all these things will happen before Jesus comes. And we're not told to slow it down. In fact, we're told the opposite. We are told to hasten the coming of Jesus. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we go and try and create an antichrist. Disciples of Jesus are not told to stop the forces of evil. Right? When the devil comes to make war on the saints, our calling is not to go and take up our rifles and our bombs and try and obliterate him. Our calling is to endurance and faith. But how can we hasten the coming of the day of the Lord? How do we hasten it? Well, we've just been told why it hasn't happened yet. We've been told that it's God's patience and God's mercy wanting more to be saved that he hasn't come back yet. And so we hasten the coming of the day of the Lord with evangelism. We share our faith. We tell others about the coming day of judgment. So we warn them about the coming day of the Lord. And then we tell them the good news of how they can be saved. We tell them that, that Jesus is our saviour and we tell them what that means and tell them that there is no other way. It's only those who have faith in Jesus who will be saved. That's how we hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. And we pray. We pray, come Lord Jesus, your kingdom come. Come in your glory. Come in power. Come as the bridegroom to the bride who is anxiously waiting for you. But why do we want to hasten his coming? You know, sometimes we can get so tied to things of this world. And, um, well, verse 13 fills that in for us. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for, a new heaven and a new earth. And we've finally gotten to the bit that's most exciting to talk about. And I'm going to say to be continued, because this is where we're going to pick it up next week as we talk about the new heavens and the new earth and how that spurs us on then to live in righteousness. But now, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we long for the day of your coming. Lord, forgive us for when we haven't remembered the significance that you could appear at any moment. Lord, help us to live each day expectantly awaiting your return. And Lord, while we wait, by your Holy Spirit, fix our hearts on things of eternal significance. Remind us to live lives of holiness and lives of godliness, that we would have a reverential awe of you, that we would be eagerly awaiting the day of the Lord and hastening your coming. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. That mercy that we thank you, Lord, that you have mercifully waited for us to share your grace with more. Lord, give us the same hearts of love, 
that we would share with our friends and our neighbours, that we would share with the world the good news that there is life and salvation in the name of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.